0: Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 81. This week we take the podcast out of the trenches, and out of the North Sea, to an area of the war that is probably not well known to people outside of Ireland, and that means we are headed to the streets of Dublin. During April 24th to April 29th, 1916, 1,250 armed men and women rose up in Dublin in what would come to be called the Easter Rising. During this time, they took over several areas of the city, with the leadership basing itself out of the general post office. This rising, like other rebellions throughout history, was not a spontaneous event, and instead was just the result of a long series of events that reached all the way back to when Ireland was invaded and occupied by English kings hundreds of years ago. The rising itself would have a long-lasting effect on Ireland, and would mark the beginning of what was a very contentious century. Because of the Rising's role in Irish history, there is no lack of study and discussion about the events of Easter week, and their role in the country's history. However, even with all of this research, there are still some things that have not been answered, especially around the motivations and the belief in the possibility of success held by the leadership group of the Rising. We will be spending three episodes on these events, with this episode being entirely focused on events in Ireland before the war. If you're anything like me, and I know that most listeners are American, so you probably are, you probably do not have a great handle on Irish history. Hopefully today I can remedy that a bit. However, I'll be hitting things at such a high level, so at the end of the third episode, which should be the last episode on The Rising, I'll try and point everybody to more detailed sources of information, if you want to dive deeper. As I just mentioned, the problems in Ireland started at the Conquest. However, for hundreds of years, it was relatively integrated into the English kingdom, but then an event happened in the 16th century that would greatly increase the rift between the two future nations. It was at this point that Henry VIII converted to Protestantism. If I remember correctly, it was because he wanted one of his divorces. While Henry and most of England converted, Ireland stayed heavily Catholic, and this would not change for centuries, even to this day. This set the stage for several armed conflicts over the next 300 years. Oliver Cromwell came to England in 1649 to put down a rebellion that resulted in a fifth of the population of Ireland dying from war, famine, and disease. In 1798, 50,000 men rose in a series of uprisings that were all crushed by British troops. These are just two examples of many that would influence the psyche of Ireland leading up to the 20th century. In 1801, there was another big event in Irish history, and that was the creation of the Acts of Union, which created the United Kingdom and abolished the Irish Commons, with the previous Irish MPs moving instead to the House of Commons in London. While all of these events were important, leading up to 1916, the most important conversation in London and Ireland revolved around the desire for home rule. There were two main groups in the home rule discussions, the first was the Unionists which were the vast majority of Northern Ireland centered around Ulster. This area was now heavily Protestant and believed that it was best for Ireland to be an integral part of the United Kingdom. They also didn't want to be under a government that was led by the heavily Catholic Southern Ireland. On the other side of the argument was, as I said, the rest of Ireland, which was primarily Catholic, which believed that it was only through breaking away from the United Kingdom and being an independent country could they reach their full potential. This second group would be called Irish Nationalists. From the 1880s onwards, the leadership of Ireland and the MPs elected to go to London were all put in their position because of their thoughts on Home Rule. It was the political issue of the day, right up to the First World War and beyond. In general, a person's view on home on the Home Rule discussion would also color their opinion of the rising as Fiergal McCary explains in this quote from The Rising, Ireland, Easter 1916. Quote, If Ireland is viewed as forming an integral part of an imperfect but flexible and increasingly democratic constitutional arrangement, the actions of the Easter rebels appear unreasonable and reprehensible. Alternatively, for those who regarded the Union as an imperialist facade underpinned by the threat of military force, The rebellion represented the justifiable and admirable assertion of national sovereignty. All of this tension between the two countries caused three different movements to occur in Ireland in the 19th century. These three movements were first a move to safeguard Irish culture. Second was the creation of the IRB, or the Irish Republican Brotherhood, which was the precursor to later more um, dramatic And finally, the creation of the first Ulster Volunteers, and then the Irish Volunteers that followed. The first movement that we will discuss was perhaps the most benign, but also the one that would greatly strengthen the others. By the middle of the 19th century, the number of people who spoke Irish was dropping. This coincided with a constant stream of British culture into Ireland, which displaced the uniquely Irish culture, in the same way that British people and money were doing in other areas. This created a call for Irish or Gaelic culture to be preserved in some way. Groups all over Ireland sprung up with this goal, with the two largest being the Gaelic Athletic Association and the Gaelic League, both of which claimed that they were not political. All of the groups, large and small, sought to preserve the Irish culture by teaching and fostering a learning of uniquely Gaelic sports, language, writing, and just other general pieces of culture. Over the course of the century, hundreds of thousands of people were members of these organizations, often when they were young and moving from being children to being adults. It should not be surprising that some of the more radical members of the Irish national movement, both from a political and military perspective, found their start in these cultural organizations. And they would always be a great recruiting ground for more radical groups, even if their purpose was pretty good. The IRB, or Irish Republican Brotherhood, was a secret society with the stated goal of Irish independence. One of the tenets of the IRB was that its members would not participate in politics, since they believed that all traditional politics were a corrupting force. This presented some problems for a group as an instrument of political change in Ireland, and it also made them a heavily conservative group that for decades was very resistant to new ideas. Enter Arthur Griffith and Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin was created to try and both capture and to put to good use the cultural and separatist activists that had been growing in number and power by the end of the 1800s, helped by those cultural groups. For several years, Sinn Féin was a powerful political force, but by 1910 it had fallen out of favor. It would be in position to make a big comeback, though, after the Rising. And Sinn Féin was one of just several that were formed in the decades before the Rising, and it was actually one of the more conservative groups, One of the more radical groups was the Nafiana Iran. Later, one of the Irish volunteers would say that, quote, The object of the Nafiana Iran was to train the boys of Ireland to fight Ireland's battle when they were men. We hope to train Irish boys from their earliest years to be soldiers, not only to know the trade of a soldier, but also, what is more important, to understand and prize military discipline and have military spirit, end quote. Several leaders of the Easter Rising would trace their history through the Nafiana. Both of these organizations are just examples of the stronger form of nationalism that was growing in Ireland. The country was no longer satisfied with secret societies or conservative political groups that were extremely slow at enacting change. Instead, they wanted change and they wanted it soon. As this mindset became more and more powerful, it was just amplified even more by each successive generation. By the time that the Generation of the Rising, and then later the Civil War, was growing up, they were in a culture that, and where powerful national movements were a, had a certain level of radicalism that was expected and sort of fostered, they would in general be far more bold and far less patient than those that had come before. And that's sort of why a lot of this ends up happening. The final of the three movements that we will discuss was blatantly militaristic. That was the formation of the two sets of Irish volunteer forces, the first of which was started in Ulster. The Ulster Volunteers were formed near the end of 1912, as a straight-up military organization. It recruited members and drilled as units with the intention of resisting the implementation of home rule, should it ever be necessary. Technically, drilling as an organized militia was outlawed in Britain after 1819. But there was a loophole if two magistrates were present to authorize the actions, which sometimes happened for the Ulster Volunteers, or also known as the UVF. However, even when two magistrates were not present, the units continued to drill without any real ramifications. These actions came to a head in March 1914, with what would come to be called the Karah Mutiny. During this series of events, there were discussions in the military about what would happen if the British garrison in Ulster was called upon to act against the Ulster Volunteers. This question had to be asked before the military, and especially the officer corps, because almost universally they fell against home rule, so it was a real question as to whether or not they could be counted on when asked to put down the group that they agreed with, especially in Northern Ireland where a lot of the men were recruited locally. No orders were actively disobeyed during the mutiny, so it's a bit of a misnomer. But it required a very serious re-evaluation of the position of the British army in Northern Ireland. The outcome of the situation was that the government was forced to move more troops into the area, and also, and more importantly, promised the troops that they would not be used against the UVF. Having to bow to the army in this way was a huge step, and a huge boost for both the Unionist and Nationalist cause in Ireland. On the Unionist side, it in some ways presented a form of formal recognition of their cause, and the possibility of its succeeding went up immensely. For the Nationalists, they saw the same thing, and saw it as a threat to having a unified but independent Ireland. The UVF did not waste any time, and they used their newfound freedom just a month later, when they were able to import 50,000 rifles and 3 million rounds of ammunition that could be used to arm its members. Sure, the rifles were mostly older Italian castoffs, but they were still weapons, which was more than they had before. The British army did not hinder the shipment in any way, which just made the nationalists even more frustrated. Look, Look at the favoritism that those people in the north are getting. From the very beginning, the nationalists and the leadership of the various groups had watched the situation in Ulster, and they had quickly ordered a second set of volunteers to be created in Ireland. Only this one would have the opposite purpose of the one in the north. The group that would become known as the Irish Volunteers were created as a direct response to the Ulster Volunteers. They were formed in November 1913, and at the beginning, the leadership of the volunteer units came mostly from the IRB, whose members had previous military experience, or from men with long records in the Fianna. The constitution that was drawn up for the Volunteers had three stated goals. To secure and maintain the rights and liberties common to all the people of Ireland, to train, discipline, arm, and equip a body of Irish volunteers for the above purpose, and to unite for this purpose Irishmen of every creed and of every party and class. It goes on to say that, quote, their duties will be defensive and protective, and they will not contemplate either aggression or domination, end quote. While it had a constitution with the above lofty goals, the volunteer units were quite diverse in the early years. They were led by a provisional committee that had 31 members, most of which were influential men in the IRB. Generally, the committee would come in and form volunteer units based on geography, and then, per- then the personality of the various commanders of each group would dictate the, the situation within the unit. The biggest difference between the volunteer companies was how radical they were. Were they moderates or extremists? As a general statement, the difference between the two viewpoints was around how far they wanted to go in the near future to break away from Britain. At the beginning, there were a large number of extremists in the volunteers. However, as time went by and more and more men came into the organization, it started to move to the moderate side of the spectrum, as generally happens with groups as more people get involved. And who were the men joining these volunteer units? I'm going to speak specifically about the Irish volunteers here, but the Ulster volunteers weren't that much different. The one thing that I think is super important when it comes to discussing the volunteers is that they were not some sort of crazy group of extremists. Like, these men were just normal people. Peter Hart would say that, quote, people did not join the volunteers because they were radical. They became radicalized because they joined the volunteers, end quote. And from what I have seen, this is mostly true. Many of the men were not even politically motivated at all when they joined. Many just liked the idea of military values and the feeling of belonging to a group that they would have once they joined the volunteers. One volunteer named Lawrence Nugent would say after joining that, quote, we were no longer a mob, we were volunteers, end quote. Along with this feeling of being in a group that was organized for a purpose, there was also the simple romanticized notion of fighting for one's country that so often attracts men to military, even to this day. Like That's a huge part of it. There was also, of course, a lot of social pressure for the men to join as well. Often the volunteer companies would meet three times a week, during which they would drill in public areas and parade through towns and villages. They would then meet on weekends for longer marches and more complex drilling. All of this put huge pressure on many men to join the volunteers, since they were so present in the specific area in which they were based. Most of the units were taught by ex-British army officers, and they often used British army training manuals. This created the interesting situation where, instead of training for the type of warfare they were probably going to be called upon to perform, mostly urban and rural small unit actions, they trained just like the British army. However, unlike the British Army, the men of the volunteers were not well equipped. Most of them did not even have the most important tool of the pre-World War I British infantry, the rifle. Getting rifles into the hands of the men was a priority for the volunteer leadership from day one. It had a hugely positive effect on their morale and discipline, and it just made everything feel more real. However, there was just simply not enough rifles to go around, especially as the number of volunteers started to swell. This created the unfortunate situation where most volunteer units were drilling with wooden rifles or nothing at all. One volunteer would say, quote, Our absolute deficiency in arms made our efforts at training seem unreal and not worth the effort. Even with these problems, the number of volunteers continued to grow, and the K'raa mutiny and the importation of firearms for the Ulster volunteers gave them another boost. In fact, the Irish volunteers would also try to bring in rifles but they were stopped at the docks by the police. Eventually, British troops would even fire on a crowd of volunteers near those same docks. Both of these incidents would have the effect of exacerbating the concerns of the nationalists and made them believe that the volunteers were even more necessary to protect their culture and their country, and their freedom. One feature of the Rising that makes it quite different than the military actions that we've discussed so far is the role of women. From the beginning of the volunteer movement, women were involved, even if they were not allowed in the actual volunteer units. Due to the fact that they were not allowed, a proper equivalent for women was formed, and it was called the Kuman Numbam. The goal of this group was to assist in the arming and equipping of a group of Irishmen for the defense of Ireland. And there was some debate right from the beginning in the group about how independent it was. Was it just an auxiliary for the volunteers or was it its own group that could make its own decisions and take its own action? And this was a debate that would not really be resolved by the time of the rising. What you generally saw a very wide spread based on geography about how close the group was to the volunteers in their area. In some areas, the women were even allowed to train with the volunteers and even to train with their firearms, but it was still well understood that by the time all of the fighting got started, they would not be directly involved. While this would still be true during the Rising, what we will see in 1916 is that women were participating in the Rising right from the start, putting their lives on the line for the cause that they believed in, sometimes in even more dangerous situations than the men were in. We will talk a bit more about their role in the Rising when we get there but I think it's one of the really interesting pieces of the rising puzzle that is well worth highlighting and devoting some time to. I'd like to finish off this episode by discussing Home Rule and what happened when the war started. In the decades before the war, Home Rule had always been an on-again, off-again conversation in the British government. In 1910, it would make another resurgence when Asquith became Prime Minister. Asquith and David Lloyd George wanted to pass a radical bit of economic legislation through parliament. It was called the People's Budget. And while it had a lot of support in the House of Commons, it was vetoed by the House of Lords. Now, at this point in British history, the House of Lords had absolute veto power over legislation, and they used it to stop this new budget. After a lot of political maneuverings that I'm not necessarily going to go into right here... Asquith found himself in a position where he could force the House of Lords out of their absolute veto, but there was a kicker. He had to have the Irish members of the House of Commons. These Irishmen were nationalists, and they wanted something in return for their support, as they should, and that thing was Home Rule. Asquith promised them that if they voted for his stuff, he would push Home Rule through afterwards. The bill would set up a wholly Irish parliament in Dublin that would control almost all domestic Irish affairs. The Unionists in the North, who were generally quite powerful in London, were prepared to fight the bill, and threatened armed rebellion if it were forced through. This resulted in a lot of discussion about whether or not the counties of Northern Ireland had to be included in the Home Rule Bill. However, as the discussions continued over whether or not they were excluded, or whether or not the exclusions were permanent, or just a set number of time, or how many counties were included in the exclusion, there were all kinds of open questions when Archduke Franz Ferdinand was killed and the war started. When the war started, the Home Rule Bill was suspended for the duration of the conflict, and both nationalists and unionists were told that when the war ended, the discussions would be restarted at the place they were at in 1914. Of course, nobody would have ever dreamed that the war would last four years. When the war started, everything changed, and not just the implementation of Home Rule. The IRB thought that this would be a great opportunity to increase the strength of the volunteers and to use them to get concessions from London. However, with Britain, which included Ireland, now at war with the Continental Power, the differences between the volunteer leadership and the membership started to show. The vast majority of the volunteers wanted to side with the British in the new conflict, and many volunteer companies pregame profitable recruiting grounds for the British army. One Dublin volunteer would say about this point in time that people who were what one would have thought rebels on Sunday were completely pro-British the following Sunday. The movement to volunteer for the army was so widespread that as many as 90% of some volunteer companies would leave. They also took many of the weapons with them, since at this point most of the firearms were individually owned rifles that the men had either bought for their use in the volunteers or for hunting. Overall, Ireland, including the Nationalist and Unionist areas, were valuable recruiting grounds for the British army, and the volunteer rate was two-thirds of what it was in Britain as a whole, which was higher than I expected. In Northern Ireland, a lot of the Unionist uh, believers, especially from the Ulster Volunteer Force, thought that volunteering would sort of show their patriotism and help them in the home rule discussion after the war, so it was a little higher uh, in the north. However, as the war drug on and conscription started to be proposed, the Irish volunteers found new purpose as an organization resisting the implementation of said conscription. This got them more support among the population and also brought in new members. Now, over the first year of the war, the biggest effect on the Irish volunteers, along with the rapid contraction, was that it purged many of the most moderate members and left only the most radical of members, both in the leadership and the membership as a whole. Now, it would be these radical leaders and the more radical group that they built up around them that would execute the Rising in 1916. Next week, we will discuss how the plan for the Rising came about. And what happened on April the 24th, when the call went out for the men of Ireland to rise up and take their country back?